Today, we respond to a CNN op-ed on white Christian nationalism. As you can probably guess, we do not support CNN's way of being inclusive. To be clear, Christian jihad is not mainstream. This is Grace Arkey with Jim Babka, sponsored by Zero Aggression Project, zeroaggressionproject.org, here on the AHO Radio Network. I'm your host, Bill Perotsman. It's important for all of us to understand the specific mindset CNN imputes to white Christian nationalism. Let's begin there. So on July 24th, CNN published this op-ed called, uh, An Imposter Christianity is Threatening American Democracy. And uh, it's an interesting article. It makes for good reading. It's a perspective that I think is, uh, is actually a mindset in America right now. Uh, that doesn't make it valid, but it does make it a mindset, and we have to address things that are mindsets. But beyond the religious Christian white nationalist point of view on this, I think what CNN has uncovered here is a trend that is a mindset that's larger than just religions, and especially larger than Christianity. It's the mindset that says what I believe is true. And there doesn't necessarily have to be any support for that, factually or otherwise. The convenient thing about religion is that we've had, like wisdom literature, we've had books to refer to. The Bible, we can stand on the Bible and say, you know, the Bible is true. And then we can produce many hundreds of different kinds of Christianity that all believe that the Bible is true in a slightly different way, <laughs> right? Yes, yes. And and that's fine, right? I'm, I'm, I love that kind of sort of openness, or maybe it's focus. But that um, idea... Can that... I, I, this is actually really, really important. And this is something that I think yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. unique in believing. So I actually put a lot of stock personally in the in the creeds, the 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 Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed. Like th yes. this is really important to my to my personal thinking. I've spent time trying to figure out you know whether that matters, and I've decided it does. But when you get to the end of the Apostles' Creed, there's this idea of a universal or Catholic Church, right? There you go. Yes. And my reading of the Bible, the story is that there is an arc there. There's a story arc. Absolutely. Yes. And one of the things that we find in there is that God does a series of things that God couldn't of, or most likely didn't do. He's accused of these things by his fault, by followers, by people who are writing the book. And the way that we know that those things aren't true is that he comes along later. Jesus comes along later and says, this is who my father really is. I want you to understand that God is love. I want you to understand that uh, the, the, in the story of the prodigal son, this is he's the, he's the father, right? And we'll talk about that more on a future episode. Frankly, I really want to get to that particular story, but the idea that we're we're shown that that the way he was represented by human beings, even in the Old Testament, was a gradual unveiling, an increasing understanding that forms a story arc, and we can see it's building over time, and we're getting more and more information as the story goes on. And the the job of understanding who God is and the focus of it actually improves. And this this by the way this solves a lot of very sticky theological questions. Uh, and this I, approach, I like that it's improving. And I'd like to suggest that I know it's been two thousand years, but I'd like to suggest that we're not done yet. No, this no, evolutionary, fact, right? No, when we when we discussed just a, a couple episodes ago, Rene Girard. I mean, this is. This is a, a a figure of the late, the very late 20th century. You're basically talking a figure from the 70s to the to the tens, uh, from from like 2000, from like 1970 something till 2010, roughly that time frame. Really, he's close on ahead. the scene. 
Yeah. And and so this this is modern stuff. And I think that he has provided a uh, an anthropological uh, understanding of of the Bible and of the story of the cross in particular that is is mind blowingly innovative. With but it, when I say innovative, people get concerned. They get nervous. Like, oh, you're trying to rewrite the Bible. No, I'm no, saying, no, no. That's not the like, point. Another layer, another piece of the story, another improvement in that arc has has come about. Christians have been sort of historically um, dogmatic about things, as opposed to say Jewish people who argue about it a lot and actually are committed to understanding the deeper meaning of the Torah. Over time, over thousands of years of discussion. Mm-hmm. And writing opinion about it and expanding thought and all of that. So this yep. mindset of sort of closeness yep. versus the mindset of openness in a religious setting is vastly different, right? This is huge. This is really important. And I love that you referenced that, you know, that there was this this mentality, this Hebrew mentality to it. It's very, very different from Greek thinking, the traditional ways we think in the West. It's incredibly different. And where the errors start to creep in is where the Greek influences become uh, maybe too much. Uh, we, we've we've taken these tools and we've over applied them to settings where they didn't necessarily apply, and we've missed a more anthropological God, right? Uh, a God who wants to be seen as a father, a God who wants to be seen in relationship, and in direct relation to what you just said, a God who wants to be understand to be wrestling with us. So there's this famous story of of Jacob, you know, becoming Israel because he wrestles with God one night. That story is fundamental to who I am, and in college it changed me. It opened my mind. Not to be a believer in anything crazy that comes along, but it just opened my mind to this to this idea that the metaphorical stories are there to guide us to a spiritual truth. Mm-hmm. And we have to embrace the metaphors before we can find the spiritual truth. And that set me apart from a lot of my Christian friends who were quite literal about the Bible. No right. judgment there. But here's the thing. So it occurs to me that this level of belief is something that we humans need for comfort. We oh, need yeah. to feel safe. And believing in something that's important is a big way of, of feeling safe about that. And this is in no sense is this an indictment. But when you look around at the beliefs that people have these days, thanks to the Internet, we know a lot more about them mm-hmm. from conspiracy th- theories and flat earther and that kind of stuff to mm-hmm. um, what do they call them? Not, they're called election deniers now. <laughs> not, you know, not stop the state, right? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't even know what. You know, how can an election denier run for office? It kind of right. So, uh, you know, it's a weird phrase. I don't. It, I know so what it, I know what they're trying to say, but it it's not accurate. But there's like this comfort in in that belief for them. Yes, and just and there's comfort in CNN reporting on this imposter Christianity, and yes. in its very nature, white nationalist Christianity is a comfort uh, belief. Now, I don't know if it's being named properly, Jim. I don't know if it's white nationalist Christianity, because that sounds a lot like Nazi Germany. You know, it's it's that. Right. And they're trying right. to make that alignment to paint the right in a way that may not be, in fact, true. But you can't really sit around in our world today and say, OK, we used to not discuss religion, politics and money. Well, we're way beyond discussing money. We do that pretty well. The conflict machine has taken care of any dialogue that might have come to the fore in political conversation and religion is just all over the place. Now, you can't assault anybody's intelligence by suggesting that maybe the literal interpretation of a particular story might be better understood as a metaphor. People get in your face about this stuff. And it's this whole thing of how can we get into your face, like the conflict machine. It's like you're figuring out ways to get into our face instead of to open a conversation here. And what I wanted to try to do today is have this conversation about the piece that CNN published, because we need to address that. 
we need to address the you know, slings and arrows that are coming from the left, and we need to address the slings and arrows that are coming from the right. Mm-hmm. And uh, what CNN's piece does is give us an opportunity to talk about that in this context of white nationalist Christianity, you know, starting with things like the belief the United States was founded as a Christian nation, which it wasn't. But um, we, we need to be able to dig into that in a way that opens a conversation rather than shuts it down. Can I walk back one more step into what you just said? Yeah, do. Um, first off, I think there is some uh, there is transcendent value to myth. And in the Greek or Western way of thinking that we have inherited here, you know, the Greco-Roman approach, rigorously logic, factual, um, we have lost an understanding of how powerful and important story is. Artists know this. Uh, people who make movies understand what story is. People who write plays, novels, they understand what story is. But we've maybe lost the centrality of that, how important story is to human beings. And, and how it, it, it has the ability to deliver truths long before we have the, the words to fully explain what it is. So there's, there, there's this, this concept of myth, a positive sense of, of stuff that is, is allegorically much more powerful than any fact could be. Yeah, I'm with and you this, on that, you know, being an artist itself, it's myself. So, yeah. And the second thing is I want to say, I just want to make sure everybody in my audience knows I don't take the Bible metaphorically. Um, now, I believe it's filled with allegories and metaphors. Some of them have expressly so. They've said out loud, this is what they are. This is a parable, for example. Prodigal son's a parable. It didn't happen. It's not history. But I do believe Jesus was a historical character. And I do believe uh, he was raised from the dead. Uh, it's, 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 it's an essential point. There's not many essentials, but it is, Paul spells it out as being an essential to being a Christian, the belief that the resurrection did occur. And it is something that provides believers that sense of hope you were referring to at the beginning of the episode, that sense of security. I agree um, with you on this. So, so those are, those are two things I just want to make clear. I don't want everybody to think, oh, Jim's going completely allegorical and metaphorical here. The Bible's just a piece of literature. I don't, I, I actually don't feel that way. Yeah, and, and I, I'm to clarify, I'm with you on that because the historical fact of what happened from you know Genesis up till now, um, although there's a lot of debate, the history appears from all of our research to be accurate in really remarkable ways that we couldn't explain any other way, right? So mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. So I'm with you on that, and I'm not saying the entire Bible is metaphor, but I'm saying the important spiritual teachings in there are only revealed metaphorically. Yeah, the, 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 it's almost like you can peel away layers to it. Right, yes. right. And that's a different mindset than the one that just says, no, damn it, this is what, this is what happened. The prodigal yes. son was real, right? And, and that's not a good standpoint, but it illustrates no. the, the mindset of sort of a closed versus the open that we talked about earlier. Yes. So let's move on to the, uh, the belief found that U.S. was found as a Christian nation. We're going to have to get into that subject, too, at some point at much deeper length. Um, but it's not accurate. First of all, it's not facially accurate. Um, the The founding fathers were a mixed bag, and they didn't agree on a whole lot. And there is a mythology that comes up around them that's very comforting. That's again what one of the services it provides. It gives a sense of security that they were involved in in in, in a truly divine act. And I will agree that it, it was a huge leap forward in human progress to come up with a Declaration of Independence and a Constitution. And I adore the Declaration of Independence. I absolutely adore. I think it's one of the, mo- the greatest things that's ever been written about uh, any place anywhere. And on top of that, it is something to which we can continue to learn from and aspire to. And so I love the fact that we celebrate July 4th and that we should on that day, I think, remember this very, very ingenious, important document. I don't think we give it enough credit or due. 
So I love that stuff. But the men in the room that agreed in that got there as a result of arguments and compromises, and they didn't all like each other. And it wasn't exactly the same men that sat in the room with a constitution. In fact, I would argue that the constitution itself represented something of a coup. Uh, we didn't get the government that we were promised uh, at the declaration or even after defeating the British. Uh, a radical change was introduced that gave us the government that we that we have now, uh, about which, you know, Lysander Spooner said of the Constitution that it was either powerless to prevent what happened or it was designed to make what happened happen. Um, so, I, you know, there was some there was a group of people back then called anti-federalists that opposed that idea. And we have our Bill of Rights, thanks to some of their shouting. Um, but we did lose kind of this, the Articles of Confederation, that stage when, when government would have been more localized instead of the, 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 the path that we were set on to have a giant central federal government. I'm saying all this to say that these people were different, different. And one of the ways in which they were different was religiously. And it goes so far and the article itself points out that there's the Treaty of Tripoli, uh, which, which says flat out, this is not a Christian nation. And we have Benjamin Franklin's attempt to get a prayer meeting set up uh, and, and it's voted down it, or it's t- tabled actually, and it never gets acted on. We don't really, these, they did not, I think they saw God in kind of a divine providence kind of way, maybe a Masonic type of way. Um, but the evidence that these men were actually believers is scant and weak. And in some cases we know for fact they weren't. Thomas Paine was a critic critic of Christianity. George Washington refused to take communion uh, at, his, at the church at the Episcopal Church, to, uh, the Anglican Church to which he belonged. Um, uh, and his, in fact, his rector even called him out a, about it at one point. That's a shocking story, but it's actually true. Uh, uh, Thomas Jefferson cut out the miracles in his Bible. John Adams said flat out that there's no way the Trinity was possible. He he was an an early uh, Unitarian. Um, so there, there's, we have all these different views and the idea that there's, that this was kind of an evangelical Christian movement at the start doesn't match up with the evidence. There's a second way. And I think this is the more profound way in which it's wrong. And that is that you can be a Christian. I can be a Christian. People listening can be a Christian, but a nation cannot be Christian. This is a reification fallacy. We have, we have, we take a concept and then we say, well, that concept applies to a group when it actually doesn't. The individual decision to follow Christ is indeed an individual decision. And even if a supermajority of people in a given culture adopt that position, they are not Christian uh, by definition. And then there's a third way I just want to throw in real quickly. And that is that the founding fathers thought by separating church and state that they were creating perhaps the most important innovation of all. There were a number of things they were looking to do but Jefferson wanted this on his tombstone and more, he thought it was more important than being president of the United States that he had helped write uh, the, the, the separation agreement that, uh, that was for, that was uh, passed in Virginia. And by 1830, it was, it was true of every single state that they had managed to separate church and state and that this meant peace, which was something that was not attainable in Europe. Uh, we got it here first and in part because we separated it from the state. This is not a Christian nation. I just want to let that sink in for a second because the values that America holds, freedom, liberty, you know, equality, all of those things are in a sense religious values. They may or may not be universal to all religions. 
And as America has become more religiously diverse, uh, we're having an opportunity to see whether or not that's true in other religions, some of which might scare us. So uh, before we get too far down that path, I want to do, I do want to say that fish, at least we assume, I don't know that we've ever asked, asked a fish, don't know they're wet, right? They're swimming in the water. The water is just a, a, a fact of their existence. It is a fact of our existence that the cross happened, that an innocent man, I mean, the ultimate innocent man was put, was unjustly tried, convicted, sentenced to the worst possible uh, punishment that was available at the time. The word crucifixion literally means agony. I mean, we can put these things together there. It's, it's like the worst thing that you could have done to somebody. And it was not just physically painful. It was very, very shameful in a culture where honor was incredibly important, an honor culture. And uh, we know that he's innocent. And the discovery of that changes and transforms everything. And we won't get into the details of this today because it's not relevant to this discussion, but I just want to throw this morsel on the plate that one of the ways that we know that this is transformative is that people now seek the victim status, right? They want to be seen as the innocent martyr or the innocent scapegoat for their, for their cause. Yeah, this is yeah. the preferred status in the West. There is nothing like this in cultures that do not have uh, a Christian milieu to them. So you can say that we have kind of like a water or that we're floating around in an environment that is itself heavily, heavily influenced by the, uh, by, by, by Christ, by, by the influence of Christian thinking that does not translate into this is a Christian nation. Therefore laws should conform to my interpretation of the Bible. So I want to make sure I make that distinction too. There's Thank a lot of nuance that. to all of this here. Yes, it, it is. It, you know, this is the kind of nuance you only get to in dialogue. You can't get to it when you're shouting at each other from your, you know, blue or red tower. So we're doing it. We're having this conversation. So it, to, to, to echo, you might be a redneck. Remember that great comedy routine? <laughs> yes, yes. So you might not be a white Christian nationalist. You might not be a white Christian nationalist if you understand that America is not founded as a Christian nation. Now I, I know I'm using like negatives there to, to describe no, it. No, I, I get what I get what you're trying to do there, and I agree with it. Yeah, um, I mean, so take fact, heart, people. I, you know, <laughs> I, I'm not even sure I have any qualification or anything to add to it. it. I just I simply agree with that. So let's move on to this belief in a warrior Christ. So um, the the article in, in CNN is trying to slam people who believe in Jesus as the you know the temple cleansing warrior, uh, the the vision of Christ and the revelation essentially as the one who's going to come with a big sword and you know destroy everything that isn't Christ-like. And um, I don't know if anyone who, who is a Christian, who is a believer, accepts Jesus in that way or the other way. You kind of accept Jesus in all of the ways. Christ appears as the loving, I mean, the, the, the loving son, right? And he can also be, you know, one hell of a temple cleanser when it gets right down to it. Um, you know, he's he's got a political... A point to make, and he does it very well. So um, this belief in a warrior Christ, I think, is awfully exclusive. So what you're talking about is Christian jihad, right? Yeah, yeah, well said. <laughs> uh, you know, one of the things that was interesting during the early part of this century, when we uh, when we were tender to what had happened after 9-11, was that people were suggesting that jihad was a uniquely Muslim 
concept, but it's found in the Old Testament and it's definitely made its way into Christian thinking. And where it lands here, and, and part of the source of it here in the in the United States is in the book of Revelation. So Jesus is portrayed as, as bearing a sword and covered in blood. And so the assumption in that uh, in that rendition is that he kicked ass, right? He defeated his enemies that way. But it, he's also portrayed as a lamb and, in Revelation, and he allegorically is such uh, at his own crucifixion. And the lamb is slain. It's its own blood. How do we not know that the blood that's on Christ isn't his own, that he shed for us? It's very, very interesting if you open up the book of Revelation. Um, the word apocalypse back at that time would have been understood or rendered as being the great revealing. Uh, the word that we, when we say apocalypse now, we tend to think we're saying cataclysm. Yeah, dystopia. Yes. But at the time, it was the great revealing. And the, and the actual name of the book, then, is the, the great revealing or the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. And the story is about, uh, it's a long allegory about what uh, Christ has accomplished. And one of the things Christ has accomplished is he reigns, he rules. But how does he rule? Well, I'm going to suggest the way he rules is a grace archy. I'm going to suggest that the way he rules is that um, he is gently calling. Um, he is pursuing, but not over-pursuing. Uh, he doesn't violate individual human will. Um, he, it's, it's somehow or other this to God is sacrosanct. Very, very important. So this warrior God comes from this sense that he's going to make everything right and he's going to punish all of our enemies. Well, to what degree have our enemies set themselves up for their own punishment? And to what degree is that judgment a righteous judgment of love? Uh, the spirit has been described as consuming fire. How much more so might that fire pain people who start to realize their guilt, their shame, the harm that they've caused? And justice is served in that sense. But does he have to deliver it? Or are those maybe to those causes, maybe it's impossible to be in the presence of God without feeling that heat of his love. And I, I just, to me, how you read that book matters profoundly. It, I mean, super profoundly. If you see this as a book of futuristic prophecy exclusively, and you think that the only thing that it serves is to show that the second time God comes around, he does what he was supposed to do in the first place. He sets everything right and he kicks butt, which is what the Jews in Jesus's time were expecting too. They were expecting a conquering king. Yeah, yeah. If you believe that the second time around he gets it right, I, I have a feeling you've missed it. And I think it sets off a whole series of errors that have affected yeah. our foreign policy, by the way, repeatedly. The, the, yes. the, war in, the war in Iraq, the way that was conducted, the way it was brought about, uh, the beliefs of George W. Bush that he used, they were, they, were, they were taking full advantage of a left behind type of uh, late great planet Earth type of theology, right? where there's, you know, Jesus raptured out and God's judgment gets, you know, man, he's really going to start kicking some butt now. Yeah. Yeah. I, I feel that's so exclusive. I mean, it shuts me out and, and it shuts me away from Christians whom I love. And that's hard because I know that they're loved by God too. 
Yeah, everybody is. And and so, and and what we keep trying to come back to again and again is that every, every person's a, a unique, uh, special work of God. And that that is what gives them their value. God cared about them first. And if God cares, therefore we should. That's, I mean, <laughs> there's a number of different definitions I could apply to grace Arky, but I, you know, I, you know, can hardly think of a better one. Works for me. And, and, and by the way, it should work for everybody, right? Regardless of your beliefs, religious, yes. political, financial, whatever, it should work for everyone. Yes. And, and personally, I don't care whether you call it Jesus or not. If, if we have to describe this, it's the love is so big that it's, that it embraces everyone, regardless yeah. of what they, where they might be on the religious. My preference on this is, is to say that I, I clearly come from that perspective and I would recommend or endorse that perspective. Um, but if that's not possible for you right now, I want you to come as close to that presence as possible. And so, you know, by whatever means you get there, so long as, you know, the idea is to get to a place where we recognize the inherent humanity of others and we stop hurting them. Bingo. Exactly. Right. And I don't care yes. if you're a flat earther, if you believe that I'm good with you. Right. Yeah. Just don't, uh, don't impose it. Like we don't need to have a government funded program to, yeah, to, Im to impose Jesus on everybody. And, and we don't want that. Let me just yeah, be clear. I think that leads to a whole set of new problems. And they're not unlike the ones we're going to discuss here about, you know, Christian nationalism. Exactly. Right. So to, to, to hit the third point here, and this is where it kind of comes home for a lot of people, to believe there's such a person as a, quote, real American, like a real American is someone who was like, here, what, at the revolution? No, there were slaves here before the revolution actually happened. So are they real Americans? What about Native Americans? What about people who emigrate? And this belief seems to be used um, pretty much to turn away all newcomers, if that makes sense. If you don't believe the way that I believe, I'm a real American and you're not. It's such a strange thought. I don't even know what to say about it. And, and you just, when you come to the United States, you get to come and kind of make your dream, Right. It, these are individual rights of life and liberty, but let's emphasize the one that I think actually gets overlooked the most, which is the pursuit of happiness. Oh, yes. The perfute. Yeah. So, so you know, a lot of people say, well, you know, there's scholars that go, well, what they really meant was property. Yeah, but property in what? Is it just strictly real estate? Is it strictly capital equipment? Is that the whole end of it? Or is it the fact that you want to be an artist and you have a dream to do something with that, or you want to start a ministry and you have a dream to do something like that with that, or you just want to live in a certain place or just pick what it is, right? We're in the, we're in the constant state as human beings of dreaming, thinking about what we would like the future to be like, and then working our way towards making that possible. And this is a country not founded on your nationality or bloodline, right? It's not founded on a religion. It's founded on the idea that you can be who you want to be. You can make yourself here. You can, you can take full advantage of the opportunities available, or you could choose not to take full advantage of those opportunities if you want, but you have the opportunity to make yourself and to make your own dreams. That's that pursuit is, is there. So the idea that we should all be, you know, something in order to be an American, I just, that, that see, I, I'm, I'm opposed to things like the pledge of allegiance um, I, I, the national anthem doesn't do a whole lot for me and I'm not trying to make hurt anybody's feelings here, but come on, you know, it's real, what it really should be about is each of the individuals in that room being able to be who they are. And I understand recognizing that and approving of that. Right. But 
we tend to forget the human and then start to submit it to some kind of collective symbol. And this then becomes the thing that cannot be touched when underneath that thing, as we discussed in the case of, uh, of Colin Kaepernick, underneath that thing is real individuals. And if they are stopping and saying, wait a minute, the pledge isn't being kept. The argument that, that, uh, the argument that Frederick Douglass made against slavery was influenced by the aforementioned Lysander Spooner. We referenced him earlier in the episode. Lysander Spooner constructed an argument showing that the Constitution, uh, that, the, that, that our founding ideas made slavery illegal. It was naturally illegal, and you should use those. And he picked up those arguments, and he was anti-constitutionalist, and then he turned around and he started using those arguments to greater effect. Martin Luther King Jr., repeatedly went back to the founding documents, said, you're not living up to your covenant. You're not living up to your promises. You're not keeping your obligations. This, These words echoed in his language. He was appealing to what we think are our best interests. This is why I said earlier, the Declaration of Independence is such a marvelous document because it keeps pulling us higher. And, and so that's <laughs> your individual right of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is what I'm after here. I, the idea that you can't, that you're un-American because your vision of what liberty and happiness are differs from mine is absurd. It's been pigeonholed as well. Uh, people of color, immigrants, the folks who are entrenched in their belief of white Christian nationalism don't allow for happiness to be pursued by people who aren't like them. And that accusation, I think, is bigger than what CNN is making. Uh, it, it's, it seems to be well known. Now, it's not every white person, and it's not every nationalist, and it's not every Christian. But when you combine those three things, you get a very toxic kind of a, a mindset that is as yeah. fixed as a, a religious mindset that cannot be changed and that is closed to anything that doesn't look like it. And then worst of all, it denies happiness to people who come to America primarily to pursue it. So how do you spot a racist bigot? I'm going to give you an acid test. Okay. This is one example. How? Bring up the subject of, of uh, have a discussion with somebody about immigration. And they will suggest, I'm not against immigration. You've heard this phrase. I know you have. I'm not against immigration. I'm just against illegal immigration emphasis on illegal so there's sure. a such thing as a a category of humans who are illegal humans since they, the they, 80s jim it's been this oh no no this actually goes back to the chinese in the at the end of the 19th century this is a long standing thing that we've been doing we didn't do it at the founding of the republic we didn't do it for nearly 100 years but when the Chinese arrived, then it started. And, and then it was the, the Italians and the Irish and the Jews and, Germans. and eventually the Germans, right? And it eventually becomes, you know, now it's, it's uh, people who live, south, you know, whose origin is south of the U.S. border. Because they're not complaining about those rampaging Canadians rolling over the northern line, right? Right, right. So then you say, okay, legal immigration. So if something is illegal, you can remedy it. By making it legal, you can come up with a way to bring people into the country. You can open the doors, you can create a legal process. And they say, no, 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 no. So they're just now they're contradicting themselves. Uh, I'm trying to think of the word that uh, uh, they use. They've got a specific word that they use amnesty. Amnesty. Oh, yes. They say it's, you know, I'm not for an amnesty. Okay. So now what they've just told you is the issue actually is that we don't like their culture. 
we don't want those those kinds of people here. That's what the issues just become. Because if the problem was that it was illegal, what we do all the time is we make new laws. We can instantly make it legal. Exactly. And just I think like, that exposes uh, something about the heart of the person that is talking to you. And I'm sorry, because I know people who feel this way. I've met them. I've had conversations with them. But I think they've got something they've got to deal with here. They're not looking at human beings the way God looked at them. Sorry. There's, uh, my dad lived in Twin Falls, Idaho for a while, and there was a mosque being constructed while, while he was living there. I went up to visit him a couple of times. You could see the construction and progressing. And it was on a main mm -hmm. street and it was a beautiful building. It was made of um, double thick cinder block with bulletproof windows. And when I learned this, I just cried because this is America and you have to have a church. There's a lot of synagogues built that way, by the way, too. Oh, yeah. And a black yeah. church burnings in the South. So, yeah. um, you know, this is not <laughs> there. There yeah, are not real I, Americans I, living but let's, in the let's South. Make a, let's make a distinction here. Most of the people that hold the view that I just described would never, ever engage in violence themselves. Yes. I, I have and that's something that is something to build upon. Even they would be appalled by the action of burning down a mosque yeah. or, or a church right? They would, that would bother them. Yeah. And, and we got to give them credit. We got to give at least that much credit and say that it's a very, very rare case. It would go to this level of extremism. Although like one of my problems with the CNN article is it basically tries to throw everybody in that bucket and assume that they would have that level. Of extremism. Right. I have that problem too, because it's not everybody. You know, that's why I said, if you, it's <laughs> you not even everybody that holds these bad views. It's true. It's true. Um, acting on them is different, but it's, it reflects the mindset. This, this mindset of Unless you're like me, you don't matter. Right. Right. And this is not exclusive to this group, but it's definitely a problem here. Yep. Definitely a problem. So you know, we're going we're gonna to go the other way on this. But CNN has identified in their focus on white Christian nationalists a larger mindset mm -hmm. that I think is quite, um, I don't want to say it's okay, but it, it's very acceptable to find something that gives you comfort and is safety of beliefs. This is why kids who can't fit anywhere else wind up joining white national or white racist groups, you know, white supremacist groups, because they don't fit anywhere. And then they leave them and they do TED Talks about it. And you can hear that one if you want to. I'll put it in the show notes. But um, the the needing to belong, Jim, you need to belong. And I, you, know, you can take January 6th as a great example. But what it comes back to here is how do I belong in this world that has to change me and at the same time, uh, not break things and hurt people. Um, I, I would like to see us create an environment. I would like to see people who were who felt tasked or burdened as human beings uh, the same way that I do, that uh, understand that our freedom actually relies not on fighting all the time for it, but actually re resides in trying to find ways to accept and live next door to people who are different from us. That's, that's what's required. Um, now, if you're living next door to me requires that you shoot and kill me, well, then we're going to have a problem. We can't, that's not going to work. But if it's a, if it's an idea that's particularly pernicious and it stays in the realm of idea, uh, I want to a talk you out of it and B, I want to introduce you to friends and others. And I want to be able to know them to know what the mission is for them to begin to make relationships with people where they find out, wait a minute, the stuff that I've been told about this class of people or what they do to, uh, to our culture or to our community or to our children all turn out to be not true. They, they, they all tend to turn out to be lies. 
uh, we have a name for this. We call it propaganda when it's being done by a government, right? Well, there's also this propaganda that's being done by various uh, destructive cultural movements. And I do think uh, the, the reactionary movement of white Christian nationalism is preying on, on, on being able to mediate uh, a, a particular view of other human beings that is absolved, dis dissolved uh, by the presence, the very presence of those same human beings. You bring them into relationship with people, empathy will be the result. That's preying as in a predator, not hitting your knees. Yes. Yeah, just so, for clarity, because a lot of us respond to these situations by hitting our knees and asking for the way that we think it ought to be done right. Yes. No, and I, and I, by the way, I'm also for, for hitting my knees and praying for things to be right. Oh, sure. Absolutely. Uh, I, but... You know, there is a concept in the Psalms of what's called imprecatory prayer, right? Where you pray for the, the judgment of what's to come and I, that it would come sooner rather than later. Yeah. Um, I feel this way about the Chinese regime, for example. I want that regime brought to its knees. Um, now, I'm not going to advocate U.S. military <laughs> solution to that, right? But I would like to see them see their, their comeuppance because they're tremendously harmful and destructive to real human beings. As you said earlier, these kinds of things have a way of resolving themselves. Uh, and we can pray for it and say, oh, great, thank you, God, when it happens. But the destructive nature of evil is self-destructive. It might take a lot of others along the way with it who are unfortunate enough to be you know, in the way. Yep. Yep. But um, being comfortable with that and not being like militantly need to go and you know take back the government on January 6th or whatever it is that mm -hmm. animated people. Um, there's no nobility in that. And that's certainly not, uh, I hate to say this, but I'll, I'll have to. That's certainly not what Jesus would do, people. I, I, I you know, the, the, the article actually was able to demonstrate that there was symbolism present that day that was of a spiritual nature, including the cross itself. Yeah, cross, Bibles, gallow. There was a, there was a gallows set up. Yeah, but the, the, the religious symbolism is, is kind of the part here that, that it, it ca catches my attention. And my kingdom is not of this world, Jesus said. My kingdom is not of this world. Now, you know, I've, I've clearly, I've devoted a life to discussing, I mean, this is my career and, and how I provide for my family, the impact of government policies on human beings. So I, it, I do care about these things. I care about the outcome of various things. But I think there are times when people become so short-sighted about what is or is not important. Um, and, you know, going to the barricades, so to speak, and bringing their Christian symbolism along and baptizing Donald Trump as into being some kind of new modern American saint, all of it strikes me as very, uh, penny wise and pound foolish. You know, one of the things that I would encourage people who've held these more fundamentalist views, because I come from a background myself where I was raised in, in a fundamentalist background. Now, although I couldn't imagine my dad having been uh, in DC that day, if he were still here. One of the things I can say is that this it's, is that fundamentalists tend to give their children a, a an atheism on the installment plan. Ha! <laughs> so tell us what that means. It means that you you, you come up wrong on so many things that you believe are consequential and your method of doing it is such overkill and it's based in such bad epistemology and hermeneutics that your kids look at you and start to recognize, especially when they get off to college, 
how absurd it all is. And they end up rejecting God when what they were really rejecting all along was the absurd things that you did in front of them, many of which you've already forgotten. But they were big, foundational and large um, in their life. And if you tell them, you know, existentially that if you don't believe this particular thing, you're not a Christian. You know, if you don't believe that God made the world in six literal days, um, you're not a Christian. And then they come to find out that the evidence is for this case is not good. And that there's better evidence out there um, to look at. But wait, but wait. So devil's advocate for a second. There are whole museums in the South about this that point out how the world is. They're not just in the South. They're everywhere. There's one in your neck of the woods. There's one in San Diego. Okay. Um, No, 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 no. So what I'm trying, I'm not trying to disparage anybody's particular belief system here. What I'm trying to tell you is that your kids are watching. And while you're busy being absurd and you're standing outside with a cross outside of January 6th, and you think that the the reinstallment of Donald Trump in the office is the most important thing, your children and grandchildren are watching and they are assuming that you are wise and that you know what's right. But when they find out you're not, when they find out you're wrong, do they simply say, oh, you had a bad day? Or do they end up rejecting God? And a series of these actions end up being un- unraveled and undone when they get to adulthood. And now it's not just college. College used to scare uh, a lot of uh, uh, fundamentalist figures, right? And we need to send our kids to a Christian college so that they don't hear this stuff. But now we've got the internet. It's impossible for them to not get their hands on this knowledge. And there's a new wave. I mean, this has been going on. This has been, George Barna has tracked this. This has been an ongoing slow motion suicide of the Western Christian church. The left side of it, decided to abandon who God was and and and, and the, the transcendent parts, the actual deity aspects, uh, and, and substituted it with a lukewarm social gospel. The, and and the, the right pointed out, look how your churches are emptying out. And this was true from the 60s to the 80s to the 90s. They emptied out. Well, now the same thing's happening to the conservative churches. And it's because they threw out these preposterous ideas where they failed to recognize the essential human nature of Jesus Christ and the message, the anthropological message that God had, the sociological message that was being provided to us. They've kicked that to the curb and and instead substituted it with, with this, this, this one-dimensional literalism. And it's so weak, it's so thin, that if you can break one part of it, the whole thing falls apart. And so, yeah, they're raising they're raising future atheists or skeptics or agnostics. That's that's what they're bringing up. And and to go back to Barna, we can actually see this. To go back to Pew, we can actually see this in the results. You know, it was pretty consistent for decades. Pew was doing this research every year or two. Pretty consistent for decades that there was more than seventy percent church attendance, and even in recent uh, decades, that it was as high as sixty plus percent. Uh, last year, the year before, I don't remember which was the very first time in American history that that it had fallen below the, the people claiming to be christian had fallen below 50 percent in this country the level of people claiming atheism or skepticism of faith or agnosticism was at an all-time high and i'm saying it's the people it's your kids that you're losing in the midst of all of this so you you know listen go save the country go do something for donald trump because he was so grateful you notice how he's sticking up for the people that have been getting convicted here you notice how he's standing by by every one of those people i mean like, right from you know two days later he was already throwing those people under the bus because he was worried he was going to get it uh get it in, in convicted he was getting impeached and actually convicted for the first time in history and he threw those people under the bus but you go ahead you go to the barricades and you take your cross with you to these events 
and then find out where your kids are 20 years from now. Someone said to me at a middle school gathering or something one time, you know, Bill, look around because these are the leaders of tomorrow. And the comment wasn't lost on me. How are no. we teaching our how are we teaching our future leaders? And right now we're kind of letting them learn on their own based on the rather poor examples, I think, that we're setting uh, in the mainstream for them. I think there are really great examples, but you have to dig for them. And I do hope that the ADHD generation is not uh, stuck with learning politics from TikTok, right? I, they yeah. they want to dig in. They want to read. They want to read you. They want to read Zero Aggression Project. They want to read about the conflict machine. They want to read about the, that, you know, all, all of the stuff that is new thought right now, mm -hmm. perhaps new enlightenment thought in a way. I mean, we haven't had this kind of revolutionary thought experience that's happening below the surface and what the media will tell you since, uh, I don't know, since the, since the European Enlightenment. It's that yeah. fundamental right now. It is, and I really it's, it's feel a huge that. shift. Yep. Rene Girard, I mean, it's huge. And and the shift is not easy, people. It's, it's, we're no. doing what we're doing because it's hard to do this. Yeah, exactly. And, and in fact, I, in fact, you know, we have actors that are trying to help prevent it from happening as well. Sure. I, I, where I'd like to kind of conclude on this, if we could, is is to really take a hammer to CNN's piece. Let's do this because it's necessary. We got to correct this, Jim. So CNN points out a set of real problems. And we've spent all this time, you know, over 40 minutes now discussing those problems. And yet they paint with such an incredibly broad brush that it's almost as if they want to put a recruitment poster up for these ideas. Seriously, yeah. Um. And I, I don't want to see people driven into these various camps. I want people to come out into the open, into the clearing, where they're, and, and have the broader discussion, as opposed to feel, feeling like the, the, there's something existential at risk we all have to fear, and we are. it is incumbent upon every one of us to pick a side. That's what I don't want to see happen. That's what I think is, is, is being presented here. And I want to give you the tiniest of examples uh, from the piece. There are several telltale signs in it, but I just want to give you one in the time that we have left. And that is that they say, they suggest, they use the term Christian as broadly as possible. And not every Christian believes these things that's being suggested. And not every Christian is even a Republican, but even of the ones that are Republican, not every one of them is an evangelical, but even of the ones who are evangelical, not every one of them would, would stand, you know, would stand with this movement. And so, and it's not like it's a minority thing. This is the, the, the old phrase, the silent majority here applies. We hear the noise that CNN wants us to hear, which is this, this loud, aggravated uh, minority. And they gain credibility and clout because they're willing to fight. And CNN and other conflict machine media agenda setting sources want this conflict. The conflict profits them. And it creates this fear. It, it, it raises the existential angst that we all have. And we feel like we have to pick a side. And I just think it's terrible. And one of the ways that they did this in here is they also painted with a broad brush gun owners. And I would argue that a majority of gun owners would not have gone to the Capitol, that they let alone been, uh, been foolish enough to actually walk into the building with no plan. Like this is, I, I'm a gun owner and I wouldn't have been there that day. I don't even agree with the notion that the election was stolen. Everybody's mileage may vary on that. It's fine. It's a different debate for a different day. But my point is that this thing painted with such a broad brush, 
because it's a conflict machine attempt to marginalize. We want to make people who hold these beliefs bad people, and these bad people have to be silenced somehow. And what the article's asking is, oh my gosh, how can we silence them? Well, that's the wrong question. Wrong question. I want to know how we can talk to them, how we can hear from them. I want to have that conversation. Let's have it. And that's exactly what we were just doing here on Grace Arkey. Principle of human respect. Yes. And by the way, <laughs> we didn't mince words, did we? Right? It's There's no incumbent rule here that you have to soft pedal this stuff. You can be honest. We were starting to address that in the last episode, and I really don't feel like I uh, made myself clear there when I was discussing this idea of speaking your truth. I need to understand who you are. And I also need to steel man, to the best of my ability, your views. Now, those views may be potentially violent views, but so long as they're not actually violent, I should be trying to understand where you're coming from and I should give you a platform to hear. And I shouldn't hesitate to tell you you're wrong and here's why. And I should do this with as much love as I can possibly muster. And that's my grace point for the day. I believe firmly that that's a new libertarian grace point and that you're right about the God is a, is a libertarian. <laughs> oh, oh, you let that one ooze out. Uh, we'll have to you know, get to that to someday too. <laughs> we're we're going to have to talk about that because yeah. there is the, as messed up as our party is, right? And as messed up as all the other political parties are, the, mm-hmm. the unifying factor is this love and this respect that crosses all of them. When you get down to it, the media will never tell you this, but it's there. And I see that in my family. I see that in my friends. I see that in people who feel differently and politically than I do, who are different religiously than I am. Yep. There is at the core of all of this love. Yep. So, uh, yeah, hate on me if you don't like God is a libertarian, but um, let's have a conversation. If that's if that's something you want to talk about, Jim and I are here for you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being here, uh, for for sitting it out with us as we wander through our um, our thought process here, and hopefully spark some for you. Uh, if you like this, go ahead and subscribe, ring the bell, so that you get notices when we post. And as always, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for your time and your commitment. Thank you for your grace. Aho.